everybody, and uh, welcome back. It's another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. So glad to have you along today on the podcast. My name is Mark Vandermoss, your host here on Radio Free Acton, and uh, we have a great edition of Radio Free Acton lined up for you today. Uh, Jordan Baller, uh, Senior Research Fellow here at the Acton Institute. He's our Director of Publishing and the Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. He is taking over the interviewer's chair to speak with Benjamin Dominich. Uh, ben, if you if you don't know Ben Don- Dominich, uh, you should. He is the publisher of The Federalist, which you can find online at thefederalist.com. Also, host of The Federalist Radio Hour, another fine podcast that you ought to add to your list of things to listen to. Uh, ben was here not too long ago at the Acton Institute delivering a lecture as part of our Acton lecture series. He spoke on the topic of the rise of American populism, a very live topic right now in American politics and culture, uh, as evidenced by the candidacies uh, both in the in the primaries of, of Bernie Sanders and as uh, the Republican nominee uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, this is a populist moment in America, and uh, Ben, in his lecture, uh, walked through the history of... Uh, of populism in America, uh, some of the unique characteristics of American populism, and diagnose some of the causes of this current strain of populism that we're going through right now in this, uh, as he says, it's a populist moment uh, in American history. And uh, Jordan was able to sit down with Ben after his, uh, after his address and uh, spend some time digging a little bit deeper into the topic of populism in American politics. And uh, without further ado, I want to get to that interview. So here is Jordan Baller talking with Benjamin Dominich on the rise of American populism. We're welcoming Benjamin Dominich to this episode of Radio Free Acton. Ben is the publisher of The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour. He writes and edits The Transom, a daily subscription newsletter for political insiders and uh, others like myself living in the heartland who want to get to know what's going on in the day. Uh, it was introduced during Ben's lecture today as a kind of a, a show prep tool for many people who um, want to get the inside scoop on what's going on, the latest news of the day. So highly recommended. Check out the transom. Ben lectured today at the Acton Institute on the topic, The Rise of American Populism. And Ben was uh, generous enough to take some time to sit down and speak with us today. Ben, I wanted to open a open up our discussion with a quote from our namesake here at the Acton Institute, Lord Acton. He wrote that liberty is the fruit of a mature civilization. Scarcely a century has passed since nations that knew the meaning of the term resolved to be free. In every age, its progress has been beset by its natural enemies, by ignorance and superstition, by lust of conquest and by love of ease, and by the strong man's craving for power and the poor man's craving for food. I thought of that quote today. A friend of mine had, had just posted it up on, on social media, and those last phrases really resonated. The strong man's craving for power and the poor man's craving for food. Could you talk a little bit about the dynamic of the strong man, the appeal of the strong man? I know that you used that phrase a few times in today's lecture. What is it about the strong man that's appealing, and what is it about the American version of a strong man, whether today or in history, uh, that can be edifying for us? You know, Jordan, that's a, that's a wonderful quote, and uh, it really does uh, describe what animates so much of our politics today. It seems to me that the American version of the strong man uh, has a couple of qualities that uh, you don't always see in other countries uh, or in other uh, polities. And I think that what you see within the American experience 
is that we we go through these ebbs and flows of American populism. Uh, but one of the things that stands out about the people who are often at the the head of these of uh, these waves is they are people who reject the uh, the approach of the elites in many different ways. Uh, they don't just reject the the authority of the elites uh, when it uh, comes to uh, knowledge and, and ac- uh, academia and those types of things. They don't just reject the elites when it comes to their tastes, um, uh, but they also reject the elites when it comes to giving them any respect for the position that they occupy. Uh, basically, what you see, you know, when you go back and look historically at a lot of different examples uh, from American populism's rise, uh, beginning with Andrew Jackson and continuing through today, is the the strong man who who will serve the people who will serve the interests of the people and set things right is called upon when people believe that the system has become fundamentally corrupt um, they believe that only someone who has those types of qualities that they respect this toughness this uh this kind of stoicism this uh, uh this inability to uh, ever back down or give up. Imagine a you know a, bull, a bulldog in the middle of the street uh, barking at an oncoming tractor trailer, and you get kind of the idea. And that's something that the people, uh, the American people, pretty consistently come back to respecting time and again. And one of the things that I think is is unique about that is that uh, what what Americans ask of the strong man is uh, to go to go in there and to set things right by sweeping away what they view as a system of that has become corrupted or that is full of graft or that is full of people who are not looking out for their interests and to serve them. Essentially, when you get right down to it, what they're actually asking for is a better class of elites. They're asking for a, a group of, of leaders who uh, will respect them as opposed to disrespecting them and viewing them as a bunch of of ignorant, dangerous hicks, uh, and that's the type of of dynamic that I think you know didn't just fuel the rise of Andrew Jackson, but that we're seeing today, which is different than an ideologically driven populist rebellion, which is something that is much more about you know a specific issue, uh, whether it be a, you know a constitutional rebellion like like the Tea Party, or whether it be um, uh, a, a kind of populist rebellion on behalf of some social good. You can consider, you know, many of the movements of the of, of the '60s, but also I would point to uh, things like the temperance movement. That was actually a populist movement, primarily driven by women and by preachers, you know, who wanted to make a significant change in order for uh, to affect the social good. It wasn't just some top down thing from the elites who wanted to you know stop people from drinking. And so when you look at the threads of American populism, the the kinds of movements that end up raising up these strong men are are often not ideological in nature. It doesn't actually have to do with a, a specific series of policy issues or something like that. It's much more about I can trust this outsider. He is going to stand up for me. Okay, so that's that's great because one of the things that occurred to me while you were talking was the question of the Tea Party revolution or the the movement or whatever it was. And thinking back to it, I mean, it's hard to think of a kind of a singular leader of something like the Tea Party. That was much more, as you said, of a kind of a classical, ground up, popular movement, if not strictly populist. So are there continuities between the Tea Party movement and what we're seeing in this current election cycle? Are they fundamentally different? Is it the nature of populist movements to have the strong man, or is that just a certain kind of populist movement, which I guess you kind of addressed already? Yeah, so, so the, the Tea Party uh, has some threads that connect to today. 
Um, in fact, Emily Eakins now at the Cato Institute has done a wealth of research within this area and uh, has some excellent data that kind of chops the Tea Party into a couple of different factions. Two of these factions were motivated primarily by economic concerns uh, in the wake of, of uh, the bailouts uh, and limited government. And concerns. globalization too, right? Because there's yes. a, definitely a threat. Yes. Maybe that's one and, of the other ones. Yes. And then the third one were people who were much more uh, they cared more about immigration, globalization, mm-hmm. um, and those types of issues. And what you saw is that the first two thirds tend to dis- tended to describe themselves as conservative. They were frustrated with the Republican Party because it wasn't fiscally conservative enough. They had a very clear ideological motivation. But then that other third didn't speak as much in those terms. It, it spoke more in the terms of grievance and feeling that uh, that the system was corrupt and that it wasn't representing their interests. It's that third portion that ended up gravitating more toward Donald Trump. All the and, bad trade deals. Yeah, basically. You know, because if you think about it, the Tea Party, everyone was angry at the bailouts. But there was a portion, significant portion of the Tea Party that was saying there should be no bailouts. And then there was another smaller portion of it that was saying, where's my bailout? And I mm. think that that kind of got glommed together as if it was all the same thing, when in reality, they were saying different things. They were both mad at something that had happened. But they were mad for different reasons and they wanted different things to come out of it. So does that did that Tea Party sort of movement morph in some ways into what we see today? Yes. Uh, However, one of the big differences that we see within the Tea Party when we look back at the demography of the people who uh, at its height were saying that they identified as being, uh, you know, pro Tea Party or with them in spirit. Uh, is that they actually are uh, wealthier than you might expect. The Tea Party is, was a fairly middle class and upper middle class uh, rebellion against, uh, against Washington. It was a lot of people who were ticked off uh, because of, of, you know, uh, of not just the, the housing bubble bursting and the values of their home shrinking, but the values of their 401ks shrinking, everything else that came with that. And those sorts of frustrations were primarily driven by middle and upper class, upper middle class concerns. The rebellion that we saw take place, at least in the early going of the Republican Party, of the Republican primary this time around, was a number of voters who typically did not vote in primaries were not active, which is not a description of most of the Tea Parties. They were very active. These are people who, you know, had honestly, you know, may have even voted for Obama in 2008, some of them. Um, But in fact, I actually, my own suspicion, even though this is not as data driven, is that you can draw a direct line from the 2008 Democratic primary to the 2016 Republican primary, looking at the issue of of uh, the white working class voters who kept Hillary Clinton going in the end, who's backed her in Pennsylvania, who backed her in Ohio, who were you know supporting her against Barack Obama because they didn't view him as being someone who would look out for their interests. If you recall, and it's easy to forget, when Barack Obama made that comment about Americans who were clinging to their guns and their religion, it was in the context of the primary. He was talking about Hillary Clinton's old white Democratic supporters, <laughs> and he was viewing them as basically a coalition of the past that we could sweep that he could sweep away and instead go to this more diverse, younger uh, coalition that now Hillary Clinton is trying to inherit. Uh, and that, I think, is is significant in the sense that if you come from that type of area, if you come from the southern and eastern part of Ohio, if you come from western PA, um, if you come from the Scots-Irish territory that runs uh, along the Shenandoah, you you understand this. I mean, it's no accident that two of the counties, uh, the two of the areas that gave Donald Trump his highest percentages in the primary were Staten Island and southeastern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay, coal country, poor hit the worst by the economic uh, recession, they've never really come back. And in in that kind of environment, 
you feel very despairing. And if you're fr- if you're a Staten Island cop and you're frustrated by the lack of, of law and order in our cities, if you feel like we're spinning off the axis when it comes to we that need issue. more stopping and frisking or exactly, whatever exactly whatever the new thing he's both of promise. those things yeah. even though even though they're very different in terms of the the cultures of both those areas, uh, you can end up supporting a, a movement like this because of that populist appeal. Okay, so so I'm hearing the the new thing now is this is this strong man that we're going to have come in, sweep away everything, bring coal jobs back, get tough on crime. What you know, during the lecture today as well, you talked about this. How far down the road to serfdom are we? Because these are the kind of categories and progressions that I'm I'm seeing at work. Uh, yeah. Where are we? Are we at that point where we're sick of the elites and we really just want to bring somebody in who can get things done? I think we're sick. I think we're sick of the people who stand up in the language of the road to serve. I think we're sick of the people who stand up on the stage with a big plan and just say, this is the plan and it's going to solve everything for you. Because that's effectively what Barack Obama did. Right. Um, and, you know, he promised, he overpromised, and he was unable to deliver on that promise for a lot of Americans who supported him and for those who didn't. And I think that the upshot of that is that now people are much more vulnerable to an appeal that is far more authoritarian uh, in nature about getting things certainly done. less technical, right? Cer- so sure, sure, cer- certainly not technocratic. But but here's the positive thing about it. I think, and I said this, uh, or I noted this in the lecture, is it's positive to see that there are so many people who still view politics as a legitimate way to air uh, these uh, grievances and to try to have an impact. And um, what's actually encouraging to me about this is that President Obama's strategy in approaching the uh, working class Americans really didn't leave them satisfied. This this is all this what's the matter with Kansas stuff that liberal America has been talking about for decades, which is why don't these poor white people vote for Democrats because our economic policies, we believe, are going to be more generous. They're voting against their material interests, right? This is the old, because that's all that drives people to vote, of course, is their material interests. Exactly. Now, of course, what that leaves out is that they vote that way for different reasons, often religious reasons or social reasons, or because they care about uh, things other than just uh, what's being shoved in their pocketbooks. And I think that the, the real thing to take away from this in a positive sense is that People aren't happy with that agenda. That agenda has not left them satisfied. They are not go, uh, you know, doing backflips over, over Obamacare. It was interesting to me to see the befuddled reaction uh, when uh, last year in the, uh, in the election uh, for, uh, for the Kentucky governorship, uh, where you had uh, you know, a contest uh, where you know, the Kentucky, uh, their, their approach to implementing Obamacare had actually been very successful when it came to signing people up for Medicaid. It was a much, their, their exchange worked better than most of the other states. Uh, it didn't have some of the same problems. And so the upshot was that a lot more people got Obamacare in Kentucky than they had originally uh, uh, thought were, were going to get it. And yet some of the counties where you saw the highest increase in people signing up for Medicaid also were the strongest in voting for a candidate, Matt Bevan, for governor, who promised to get rid of the program. Hmm. And so uh, this was something that stunned a lot of Democratic politicians. You know, why are why are they voting against their self-interest? Well, because Medicaid isn't leaving them satisfied. It's, it isn't making them happier. Maybe they feel a little bit more secure, you know, regarding their health, but they, they don't really view it as an answer, and they don't think of it as something that is uh, a sufficient replacement for the pursuit of happiness. And I think that that is a sign that this approach from the left has failed to win over those voters 
they're still looking for something better. Okay, so so this also plays again into something that you talked about in in the lecture where you've got this kind of a model of uh, younger, white, working-class males who have, in historic numbers, opted out of the workforce or been involuntary, left out of the workforce. They've got their $1,200 a month in whatever form of government assistance is coming in. It's enough, again, to self-medicate and do all these kinds of things. It's enough to address, in Acton's formulation, the poor man's craving for food. Mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing is it's not enough. And this is not just what's driving people. It's not just the poor man's craving for material sustenance or material provision. Some of the guiding lights of the Acton Institute are, are figures like uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Abraham Kuyper and Leo Thirteenth at the end of the 19th century who are dealing with some similar sorts of revolutionary dynamics, upheavals and great inequalities and angst. And where all of these these kinds of figures start is that there's a spiritual hunger, a need for spiritual food that is at the root of all of these social issues. Um, To what extent do you think that's true? And how is that reflected in our cultural challenges today, Um, the lack of trust in institutions and the mediating institutions, which you spent a lot of time, uh, rightly so, emphasizing in the lecture today? It it seems to me that this is really strikes at the core of of how bad things have gotten for many Americans because the conversation that we have about religion in this country is really colored by uh, an upper class of people who still interact with the faith, uh, who still, uh, you know, have some kind of religious element to their lives or who have no need for it because of other things that fill their time or, or that they find fulfillment in. Religious faith has always been something, though, that helped make life worth living, for many Americans and uh, made you feel connected, not just uh, an individual and lost in the sea, but a feeling that, uh, that there is a real uh, community out there that you are a part of. If, if we live in an era of such hyper-individualization where people are constantly struggling to find fulfillment and, uh, and constantly having something in their life uh, that uh, that is a gaping maw that needs to be filled or, or was filled in the past by religious belief, then I think that's an indication of just how much we've slipped away from having religion be a, a mitigating factor, a mediating institution in our lives. Distrust for the church, not just the Catholic church, but for evangelical churches, for other churches in America, um, is part of the problem here. Uh, another part of the problem, I think, frankly, is is the church not understanding that uh, that it has to really go forth and evangelize and meet people where they are as opposed to waiting for them to come to them. Um, I think that, you know, another part of it, frankly, is that in... The church it, is a servant rather than as a country club kind of exactly, model, right? Exactly. Somewhere and, and, to be served. And one of the other things that I think actually is a, a problem with this, uh, and I don't mean to offend any of your listeners, is I actually think there is... A connective line between the growth of self-help churches and the prosperity gospel and the rise of someone uh, like Donald Trump. Sure. Because if you're just told over and over again that God is rewarding you because you are being a good Christian or that that reward is an indication of your own goodness and, and what uh, and what you're doing in your life, an affirmation of it, um, then wealth and prosperity can become a substitute for actual acts of of, of grace uh, toward others. And I think that you know the flip side of that can also be true, which is to say you can feel guilty or downtrodden or upset about the fact that you're not doing as well and that this is something that can lead you to 
uh, you know, frankly, the wrong decision to break away from the church mm-hmm. or to or to start viewing them as being, you know, a place that that has no uh, no space for you. I think that that spiritual crisis is, you know, again, a long running thing, something that predates this populist moment, uh, but something that has definitely been continuing uh, to grow as a as a crisis, really, uh, among our families and in our communities. As meaning as the relevance and and uh, vitality of these mediating institutions, including the things like the church and all the you know all the other kind of things, the 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 Nisbet mm-hmm. sort of thing, the quest for community, and all this. As this has slipped away as a as a viable arena, and we've we've seen power evacuated from these mediating institutions, we're left with this model that you provide, uh, and I think rightly so, between a kind of a centralized group of elites and these disparate atomized individuals. And this is something like what we're approaching. It certainly hasn't been implemented to the absolute end end degree in all times and in all places. There's there's different experiences of this depending where you are in the country, what what your zip code is, and this kind of thing. But what what are the what are the solutions to this? I mean, this is it's one thing to to diagnose it and say, um, you know, look, we're not we're opting out. We're we no longer find meaning in these places, or I don't trust the church anymore. The declining trust in institutions as such, which you outlined, and it's it's all institutions. It's it's sort of big institutions, yes. right? So it's not just anti-institutionalism, although that seems to be a part of it. The, but. the only thing is basically that people are positive on the positive side when it comes to trust of institutions are the military and small business. Right. Yep. So virtually So the small is. businesses too, right? Yes. It's not corporations, of course, not corporations, right? Corporations, no. So it's big institutions, including things like denominations mm-hmm. or the mainline kind of ways of identifying big institutional religion. Yeah, so let me just follow up, I guess, more on the prescriptive side. Sure. Luigi Zingales had a book, and I know we've we've talked about it a little bit. Capitalism for the People was the title of the book. What is it about the free market message that has failed to resonate? Why isn't there more of a kind of a clear popular appreciation for free markets? And what is it about that message that that uh, is failing to resonate? Is it are we not? Is the packaging wrong? Are the ideas right and the packaging is wrong? Because it seems to me that the message is is something that should connect with everybody. If it's not an economy that's working for everybody, then it's not working right. So I think a big part of it is uh, that the message that has primarily been used by many free marketers, at least on the political stage, has been a message directed at the entrepreneurial class, mm-hmm. which is actually a very small number of Americans. Sure. It's not a significant portion of Americans. That entrepreneurialist tend to be elites, actually, yes. many of them, right? Because yes. they have a kind of a, a safety net. Yes. I mean, they take risks, yes. but it's also. <laughs> and I think that I think that the problem with that is that most Americans are not that type of risk taking businessman. They are instead, uh, you know, people who are working and want good paying jobs and want uh, solid benefits. They don't want to worry about losing that job to uh, global competitive forces. They uh, they want to be able to have. A, a solid life for themselves and for their families and for their kids if they have them. I think that the problem really is that the message on the free market front has been more about the, you know, the rugged individualist entrepreneur pulling himself up by his bootstraps, you know, that we built that sort of approach. Right. Instead, I think that the message has to be the American, the American system of, of, of free markets has allowed us to have enormous advantage when it, when it comes to inexpensive goods where, you know, even the poor people, even poor people can afford smartphones right. and, uh, and all these other things. I think the message actually has to refocus on the things that people view as essential to their lives that are warped by government policy in ways that do not behave according to uh, actual market forces. A perfect example, of course, is the cost of a college education. 
if you're a parent today, even if you didn't go to college, you want your kids to go to college, presumably. Right. And you're daunted by the idea that, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to be able to afford this? Well, colleges have been insulated for far too long by our current system of policy uh, against the type of market forces that would force them to offer cheaper products and offer educational experiences that actually have uh, an outcome that is likely to get people a job. Breaking up that system in a way that would break up the higher ed monopoly on uh, the, the kind of... Uh, the, the kind of cartel that they have when it comes to accreditation, allowing for more courses to be accredited uh, within uh, the corporate environment, allowing mm-hmm. for more training and apprenticeship programs, uh, allowing for more innovation, yes. basically the, yes. the very thing that you don't yes. find in, in so think about, think about the things that the people are most worried about when it comes to, you know, if, if you want to have a successful middle-class life uh, working in a job where, where you are making, you know, a median uh, income or close to it, the things that are daunting to you are the rising, continuing rising costs of college for your kids, healthcare for your family, housing for yourself. And all of these are areas where government policy has an enormous warping effect. And those are the types of things that I think we ought to be more focused on. Right now, energy prices are not a problem for people. But I think that one of the interesting things that happens when you talk about a lot of the different pocketbook issues is that there's a real gap between the way that the economist at a think tank in D.C. looks at things and that people practically look at things for their lives. They, sure. they view the, the rising costs of a lot of these goods as things that prevent them from ho- having any hope that their kids will have a life that's better than their own or that their grandkids will have a life that was better than theirs. And I think that's a lot more about these areas where voices for free markets should be targeting areas where government has uh, had a, an incredibly warping, anti-competitive, anti-innovation effect in a way that has hurt Americans and has added uh, costs to them. We can't just get into this back and forth with the left where they're just saying, we'll just throw more money at the problem. We have to say, we need to break these systems open. We need to have more competition. And we need to get back to healthcare systems, colleges, and a housing market that that serves the priorities of our citizens as opposed to responding to the whims of Wall Street or the whims of investors or the whims of certainly college administrators. We need a, a an economy that works not just for Wall Street, but all streets. <laughs> Uh, speaking of breaking the system open, I'm going to let, let, bring the bring, bring our conversation to a close. And thanks again, Ben, for joining us today with a question about the political expression of populist movements, whether it's the one today or historically. What hope is there for this rebellious spine that you identified in, in the lecture as a constitutive of the American people? What hope is there in this rebellious spine of the American people? And how should that hope come to expression? Please give me a message of optimism that we can somehow smash this intolerable duopoly we have in our in our political system. What is there a third party hope? What is there? I mean, what should we hope for politically, even realizing that yeah. that's not the, the main vehicle of our. Well, well, first off, I just have to say, I think I think politics is downstream from culture. And I think the most important aspect of this populist rebellion is actually not its political ramifications so much as it is. Uh, what comes next w- within the culture and within how people either alter their behavior, change the way they live their lives, find help, get treatment, collaborate with others to solve the problems in their communities. I think that's the most important thing. But when it comes to the political aspect of it, I, I think that the the real danger coming out of this uh, election is that all of the pieces are in place for no one to learn anything. <laughs> and the reason for that is that after this, everyone is... Uh, incentivized to retreat to their corners, uh, to blame it on whoever their uh, typical uh, um, blame target is, whether it be conservative media or the establishment or 
uh, reality TV or what have you Mm -hmm. and say, okay, well, that was a black swan event. Let's move on. I don't think I think it's possible for both Trump to be a black swan candidate, a unique celebrity with a unique traitor to his class appeal to uh, working class Americans. But but it's also possible for him to be an indication of a trend. I think he is both. And I think this trend that has been moving away from our post Cold War left right politics of the previous uh, decade and a half towards something that uh, looks more like uh, an, an inside outside uh, or, or a top-bottom sort of uh, politics where if, if you come from, from uh, a certain class or you come from a certain area that you identify as being uh, one of the deplorables or the downtrodden or mm. something like that, that you view uh, the elites as people who hate you and who resent you and who certainly don't respect you or your views. I think the most important thing to come out of this is whether we're going to see a new generation of leaders who learn how to treat these people with respect and treat their views with respect. And that's not to say that they have to accept the answers that these people necessarily want, okay? But it is to say that they have to respect the the situation that they are in, the concerns that they have, and then they have to channel and lead that. I mean, that's that is as fundamental a Burkean definition of statesmanship mm-hmm. as it is. And I think that that judgment and respect offered to the citizenry is going to be the most important aspect of what comes next. If we don't see that happen, then I think that we are entering a period where if the Republican coalition does not die, it will at least be changed and become something else. Sometimes historically parties die. They retain the same name, but they have a different Mm -hmm. coalition. They have different people who make up their voting base. And it's very possible that we could see a situation where a third party uh, or another coalition uh, or another portion of the coalition emerges from this as staking out turf in a different area. The most curious aspect of that to me will be what happens to social and religious conservatives. They mm-hmm. may they may not be the the favorite of the elites. They may not be uh, representative necessarily of the of the populist rebellion that elevated Trump, but they are still a significant portion of the American electorate. And increasingly, I think they are feeling homeless when it comes to viewing any leaders who are willing to, to stand and fight on their behalf. Perhaps a good reminder for religious believers that this world is uh, not our ultimate home, at least this world in its current formulation, and that we are sojourning here to some degree. We have the, we have the advantage of knowing how the story ends. <laughs> That's correct. And that, that is a message of hope in the end. Benjamin Dominich is publisher of The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour. He writes and edits The Transom, which is highly recommended. Ben, thanks very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And with that, we bring this edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. Uh, great interview. Thanks again, Jordan Baller, uh, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. Senior Research Fellow and Director of Publishing here at the Acton Institute. Thank you, Jordan, for taking over the interviewer's chair. You did a fantastic job. And, uh, of course, Benjamin Dominich, uh, fantastic uh, speaker, uh, thinker, and uh, publisher of The Federalist. Be sure to check it out online, thefederalist.com. And also uh, make sure you check out The Federalist Radio Hour as well. Ben is the host of that and and, uh, does a fine job there as well. That is it for this edition of Radio Free Acton. Thanks again for joining us here on uh, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Uh, Look forward to talking with you again on the next edition of Radio Free Acton. Have a great day, everyone.